Yo, what's good? Welcome to Counter Currents. This is episode 100. I'm your host, Petey Steele. And your co-host, Alanis Torres. And today, our guest for special episode 100. We are so excited. Please welcome the hilarious Adam Ferreira. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, Pete. Don't get up. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, man? I really appreciate you joining us for this uh, centennial episode. Yeah, I had no idea. I was I was uh, looking for I'm always looking forward to coming to see you guys at the draft house. So I will be there. Uh, and uh, when you guys asked me to do the podcast, I said, hell yes. So I'm glad to be here and happy 100th. You guys look good. How's your Thank hip? You. Thank, Thank you. you. You know, I broke it a couple times, but mm-hmm. doing those stretches, you know, yeah. it's, it's a hundred episodes is good. My, I'm, I'm at like maybe a episode 82, 83 in that vicinity. And nice. it's, it's a labor of love, but don't, 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 it's a lot of work. Podcasts are a lot of work. So thank you guys for listening and, and watching and whatever you're doing, consuming these podcasts, because we do put a lot of time and energy into it. So I'll, as long as it's being well received, I don't mind putting the work in. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. And the funny thing is when you start a podcast, you're like, oh, it's no problem. We'll just meet once a week and do it. It'll be no issue. And ah, then, nah, nah, you got to work real hard to make it look easy. Yep. Yep. There's all kinds of uh, I've become an audio engineer. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of other fun stuff that happens in podcasts. But, but like you said, it's worth it. Yeah. But I'm having fun on mine. I'm getting to talk to people um, that uh, I'm really interested in talking to. And because I have the show, they come like uh who did i just have oh this i don't know when this is going to air but coming up like uh of uh, uh michael imperioli from the sopranos uh, I, nice. I spoke to uh nathan lane which was a lot of fun for me wow um, if you're a sports fan i had joe buck on um ed falco did one for me kevin james uh and it's a lot yeah. of fun i get different different people i i had an astronaut on i spoke to katie coleman she lived in Whoa. she lived in the space station for six months Oh my God. And I, I like uh, no problem for her COVID and quarantine. She's like, yeah, she she would rather have zero gravity at home. So I spoke, (laughs) she was there for six months and she plays the flute. So she did a duet from space with Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. Wow. I've done nothing with my life. (laughs) (laughs) And played a duet with, with, uh, with Ian Anderson. She was great. Um, who else? Oh, I had on a, uh, I had on an FBI profiler that worked on the Bundy case. That was creepy. Wow. Yeah, he was right. Yeah, that was a, We took a left turn into some kind of nuttiness there. But that was, was that one of the people that was on that documentary on Netflix? No, this guy named Bradley Garrett. He was a uh, he was a um, uh, an FBI profiler, um, right. and he worked on that case. Uh, but he was he was a correspondent for uh, a true crime dude for uh, ABC News. He had a, a long list of. Uh, of, of of places he worked. So he was telling me all about that. And I had on, I don't know if you guys are the Zodiac Killer. There's a documentary yeah. on FX um, called The Most Dangerous Animal of All. Four-part docu-series. I watched the I watched the whole thing. I called my producer. I got, we got to talk to the lady that wrote the book. And I spoke to her too. She was great. So what's the main thing that you learned talking with all these like psychopath experts? <laughs> they get caught. They get yeah. caught. Yeah. And here's the other thing about serial killers. I, I'm like, you know, they they're, there's cognizance of guilt. You know, it's not like, oh, I didn't know. No, you didn't. <laughs> you knew. You buried the bodies in your basement while you're wearing a clown suit, Mr. Gacy. You knew, you know? So, yeah, I always thought that they lived in their own private Idaho, but nah, they knew exactly what they were doing. And they liked it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, and part of them, I'm guessing, probably want to get caught in a way. Like they're doing it because they want the attention. I think they they it's a compulsion. You know, you can't yeah. you can't really help it. It's like you know, it's from what I got, it's it's a compulsion, and they got really good at it. And Bundy specifically, only because I had intimate knowledge of the case through uh, through my guest on the show, um, he was really charming. You know, no one knew to look for it then. You yeah. know, that scene in Silence of the Lambs with the broken arm. Can you help me put this in my van? I'll hit you oh, my yeah. That actually happened. They lifted that right out of the case file. Oh, that, really? Yeah, that actually happened. Bundy did that because he was he was a charming dude. He wasn't that much and he could fit in on a college campus. So he rode around. He had a body in a Volkswagen. That's commitment. Oh, my God. It's yeah. Not, oh, my God. I, I, let's say I'm a serial killer. I'm getting, you know, a truck. You know, something with a bed, maybe, you know, a, a pickup with a cap, maybe. This guy's got it in a Volkswagen. Yeah, so. if you can if if you can ha have that smell in a coupe, that's how yeah. you know you're committed. There you go. <laughs> you know, they said, though, in that documentary that those bugs were all over Seattle and the places yeah. were killing. So it was kind of like he, he knew how to blame or yeah, maybe fit just in. synchronicity. I don't know. Yeah, he fit in. He fit into the public. He was very charming. Nobody would suspect him. And again, it really wasn't in the consciousness of these serial killers are out there. I mean, the the end of the '60s was the Manson murders. So you know, the end of uh, if if you look at it music wise, you know, Woodstock was all oh, peace and love, and then Altamont was now it's over. You know. <laughs> So that when the Manson murders came out, everyone just started locking their doors and the drug moves and drugs move from LSD to uh, and marijuana to like, welcome. We love everybody. All is one to cocaine going lock the door, lock the door. There's killers out there. So everything switched then. Uh, but but still, the awareness of serial killers and predators wasn't in the popular consciousness. So that was also a contributing factor to how we got away with it. Did, yeah. they, did they talk at all about how there's sort of this public obsession with these people and is that does that make it worse because no, there it is right yeah well there's there's a there's an aspect of there's a seductive nature to it of the danger and so even like I, I was drawn into the zodiac killer because it happened at the time and the place that i always had an affinity for san francisco in the 60s and that whole music and that whole era of everything because it was way before my time but it was like I remember when I look at the news footage that there's a part of my brain that remembers seeing like people like that on TV. So I'm kind of fascinated because I got a taste of it, but I wasn't really aware of it. And it was the guy wore the guy wore a hood. He wore an executioner's hood. He was the first one that taunted the police, wrote letters. He wrote letters and he gave uh, ciphers to the uh, the uh, San Francisco Chronicles. He was leaving clues and everything. So I was like, this is tailor made, you know, and they and he was never found. So it was like, you know, the, the mystery continues. So, yeah, the nice thing about the show is I get to go off on tangents like that. And if I see something I like, I get to talk to the people. Yesterday, I just spoke to uh, R.J. Cutler, who directed the um, the Showtime documentary on Belushi because I was uh, Showtime. Oh, and that's next on my list. I just watched yeah. the I just watched that Comedy Store documentary on. Showtime. Yeah, that so was all awesome. great. Did you see it? They sent I, I got a preview of it. It was great. And yeah. I, uh, I called the office and said, I want to talk to the director. And he said, OK. And the guy said, I'll do it. So I spoke to him yesterday. It was great. That's awesome. Did the director yeah. have any connection to Belushi or was it just like he did? No, his uh, he was a documentary filmmaker. His first his first uh, documentary got nominated for an Academy Award. It was uh, The War Room, the uh, the uh, Clinton documentary. That so, was excellent. Oh. The yeah, Carville, was, Mary yeah. Madeline thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when you looked at James Carville and, and he like, those guys are married, you know? Yeah. yeah. So they got 
together, they explore it and all that. I remember they did a bear commercial or one of those Advil things back yeah. in the day. Two of them giving each other headaches, and now they had to <laughs> yeah. duck down, feed a minifin to stay married or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, it was great. So I, I spoke to him. I don't know when that's going to be out. Um, there's a new Jerky Boys album. I don't know if uh, you guys are Jerky Boys. I love the Jerky Boys. Dude, you're hitting all my fucking notes. I was going to say, Petey is like. My girlfriend is going to be so pissed when she hears this because I quote Sopranos and Jerky Boys like nonstop because uh, I'm an asshole for that. So. <laughs> I spoke to Johnny Brennan, who created it. He was, uh, he's got a new album out, so he stopped by. So that was great. And if you're a Sopranos fan, who did I have on? Edie Falco had on uh, Steve Sherrill. Yeah. yeah, I saw Sharippa and the thing we were going over it last night. That's fucking cool. Bobby. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. He was I've known him for years. I knew him. He did my show. I had a show um uh called Top Gear, and he did an episode of that for me. And I knew him from uh you know, just from stand up. He used to run the rib in Vegas. Yeah, I never saw one of his sets. I couldn't find any on YouTube or anything. I mean I was Happy to learn he was a stand-up before being an actor. He, too. he wasn't really a stand- he was an actor. He, he booked he booked the room. He ran the room. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. He's a sweet guy. And uh yeah. So it's 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 to have that access to be able to talk to uh to talk to people on, on the show is great. That's why when you guys asked me, I said, shit, yeah, let's do it. Let's have some Yeah, fun. thanks for thanks for doing that. We were we're thrilled. And it's the cool thing is because usually the way this podcast works, mm-hmm. we we talk to comics between shows. Mm-hmm. on saturday so we usually only get people for like 20 minutes right but the cool thing with this is we've been able to talk to some of you guys for like longer periods of time and without the sort of like nervous because you're about to do a show right yeah. it's not like everybody's nervous yeah no but you're you're you're, you're not totally present because you got something totally. to do with it. and totally. you're an erotic comic that that requires the adulation of others to fill the hole in your empty life exactly <laughs> that's true speaking uh-huh. of empty lives tell us about yours where'd you grow up where did i grow up uh, i was born in queens i was raised on long island um uh no huntington one- station right huntington uh huntington station and i was i was in huntington I don't know, if something gets on wikipedia and it stays <laughs> there, it, it, that's what, you were a gold medalist yes yes the yeah. <laughs> so yeah i was uh raised out on long island and um I got lucky because my parents, um, specifically my father, because he was he was my hero and still is, um, was very supportive of me doing stand up because no one in my family did this. I come from, you know, uh, construction workers, you know, everyone worked with their hands, you know, I, and as did I until my father realized you're not good at this. <laughs> this ain't for you. This is you. You're going to you're going to go hungry if this is what you got to do for a living. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, so I grew up, uh, but my father was very supportive when, because I didn't know I wanted to be a stand-up. I, I don't know if you guys knew when you guys wanted to. to Fuck no. You know, no, no clue. I, the only thing I, I consciously remember was when I was 12 years old, I went to a party with my, uh, you know, those parties you used to go to with your mom and dad where your mother would give you the warning in the car. Like, yeah. When they're like, now your father does business with these people. Yes. Save yourself. <laughs> yeah. You act like an animal. You just stay by the hors d'oeuvres and try yeah. to find a friend Keep or something. Keep your mouth shut. Don't touch the man's furniture. Don't touch the lady's yeah. stuff. And for God's sake, don't clog the toilet. Yeah. Take guests. Okay. Stick to the kids section. Yeah. So they went downstairs and they watched uh, uh, a VHS tape of uh, Richard Pryor. The, uh, this, the, uh, the uh, Sunset the- Strip. No, the one before that Santa Monica concert where Patti LaBelle opened for him. Oh, yeah. Live in concert. Live right, in right, concert. Right. 
So he went up, the, the, the adults went upstairs. I snuck down. I was about 12 years. I snuck down. I rewound the tape. And standing there, I was standing there watching it with my mouth open. There's no one else in the room. And I just remember saying out loud to nobody, I'm like, look what this man can do. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I, I didn't put the, I'm going to do that. That's me. That's what I want to do. I just was, I knew this was important. I didn't know what it, what it meant to me. I just, this was important. This was the first time in my life, my full attention was focused on this. And I was just like drawn in. So then I started doing Richard Pryor's uh, bits on the bus, school bus. And you get laughs. You don't know what you're saying, but you get yeah. laughs. 12-year-old white kid. What the hell do I know? Yeah. But I was getting laughs. And um, then I started, you know, I saved up money and I started buying the albums and I had to keep them under the bed. And then I then then I, I got introduced to Carlin. So the comedy album became very important to me. You know, there was Robert Klein, that whole door opened up. I mean, there was I bought an album from the Tonight Show. They recorded the Tonight Show. It was the fucking Tonight Show on and out. I bought it. Don Rickle, I bought all that stuff. Right. Saturday Night Live had an album. They just had the bits. Really? It was an album. Oh. The, the bits. Yeah, they had it on the uh on, on an album. And I got that too. I bought them all like on the kids. greatest hits or something. It was just the audio of the sketches and they put it on an album. Wow. And it was, you've seen the picture. Dan Aykroyd's pulling his hair this way. And they're sure. all lined up. That's yeah. that was the album cover. And they just made it. And I just I would consume everything. Uh, and I, I would get the uh, when I say I got the album, I get the cassette tapes because they had the Walkmans and I would just walk around and I process by listening because I'm dyslexic. So that was just mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just throwing shit into the machine. Right. Um. And then I uh, I got out of a college. I told my parents, well, we've done one of your things. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to try one of mine. And I went down to an open mic on Long Island and uh, I did well. And I figured that would be it. OK, I did it. I can check that off my list. And I got a call. I didn't know that my agent, my soon to be agent was in the audience. Um, and he tracked down my number through the club. Um, and he said, hey, are you open tomorrow night? This is Tom. We met the other night. And I had, I had no idea what he was talking about. I go, yeah, you want to go bowling or something? <laughs> I got 20 bucks to go do my act. He goes, I need you to do five in front of Jackie Martling at this, at this bar. Joke, man. Wow. Yeah, at this bar. Because and, and, he, lived, he lived in like East Norwich or somewhere. He lived on that. And I was from Long Island. So, and I had a car. So I guess somebody told him that. He goes, I need you to do five minutes. I need you to do your act. And I remember going, oh, sure. I have an act. <laughs> I have an act. They gave me 20 bucks. I did five minutes. Wow. I did what I was doing. I came home to tell my mother. I said, I got 20 bucks. Give me that. I'm going to press it in a book. She took the 20 bucks. She pressed it in the book. I never saw the cash again. <laughs> but after that, I realized, I said, well, look, I don't know if I'll ever get this again, but if it happens, I better do something. So I listened to the tape because the only thing I really wanted out of it was to make my own tape because those were the things I was listening to. Yeah. And it was like magic when I heard my own voice. And I heard the laughter with the voice. It was like, I was like, now there was no, it wasn't comparison to what I was listening to, but the fact that my voice and those where the laughs should have been or where some laughs were was I'm like, wow. But again, no expectation that this is what I wanted to do. I had this thing I could listen to. So did you feel like it was a fluke almost? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I felt when I did it the first time and it worked. And then the next eight times after that, I was like, no, this is bullshit. I'm 30 years in. I'm going, I'm still fooling these fucking things. <laughs> they have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, there's times you get laughs and you're like, really? 
Yeah, it's like all the stuff you're doing, all the acting gigs and the podcasts and stuff. This fuck, this isn't even plugged in. This is not. <laughs> I'm making it up. So I started doing stand up, and then I um, I got uh, I was fortunate. You know why I worked so much when I was a kid? I had a car. Because mm. I always worked. I always had a car. I always worked for somebody. Even if it was my dad in the construction business, I had a work ethic because the boss followed me home. So it's not like I can call in sick. You know, <laughs> and you got to be on time and you got to know what he's thinking before he thinks it to give him what he needs before he asks for it. Because that's the way. So that's that was the way I was conditioned. So I just took that work ethic and applied it to stand up. Like, all right, if something else happens, I'll have this and I have this. So I just kept working. And because I was I knew to be on time, I knew time was money and I had a car. I would pick up because I was from Long Island. Uh, I would pick up all the headliners in Manhattan. Because there were there were these these little one nighters you could do in Jersey and Connecticut, but they couldn't get there because no one in Manhattan had a car, so they right. would have to take a train and get picked up. And the clubs didn't want that, so these little booking agencies found out I was on time, I was funny, and I had a car. So I drove in. I, then the Improv used to be, I think it was on Forty Fourth and Tenth or Fifty Fourth and Tenth. It was on the West Side, and we used to meet the comics, the headliners there, and you pick them up at. Uh, at the improv and we drive to the gig and on the way home you drop them off you're supposed to drop them off at the same place well i would always tell them hey look you're going to get out of my car to get into a cab which is another car to take you home save the cab fare i'll take you home where do you live so i took them home directly and they the phone would ring yeah i'll take the gig send adam to pick me up because they knew they were going to save money on cab fare i was on time the car was clean and the ladies i worked with felt safe okay you work so smart yeah so smart I feel like that's something with with a career in entertainment, you know, in the beginning when I was young, because I'm also pretty reliable. Good for you. And I was just, I, I, IMAX. Yeah, that's me. I was, I, I was, I've always been like that just because same thing as you, like my parents just instilled that in me. Yeah. Since I was really young, like, mm-hmm. just you know, don't fuck up at work. Like your boss is your boss. You yeah. know, none of this. Friend. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't care what you've gone through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't care about your story. Like they're you are there to work for them and they pay you money for doing that. So show up when you're supposed to, do what yeah. you're supposed to, and leave. And in the beginning, when I worked in entertainment, I almost felt bad about it, but then it's such an advantage because so many people mm-hmm. are unreal, you know, are not those things that you're talking about. So if you're yeah. funny. But there's other funny people. But if you're funny, plus being professional, yeah, the huge leg up. Yeah, there's no aggravation. It's not like he's funny, right. but you don't want to hear he's funny, but right. You want right. to be the first one on the set. You want to you want to know your friggin' lines. You don't want to be you know. That's it. It's a business. It's a machine. Right. Do you feel sometimes in this business there's kind of a bad self fulfilling prophecy of like the self destructive comic that just sort of lends itself to not being professional and then fucking it all up. It's a choice. It's a choice. It, it, well, it, it, you're aware, you're either aware of the choice or you're not, but a choice is being made. And if you're self-destructive, you know, you can be self-destructive no matter what you do. Comedy didn't do this to you. This is just True. This right. is the context in which your self-destructiveness has shown itself, you know? Right. Sure. I got friends of mine still swinging a hammer, the most self-destructive people I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like, I don't, I don't think, I think there is something to, to the, I think there is something to the emotional, um, uh, the being misled emotionally as to your self-worth through adulation of other people. 
-hmm. you know, you know, if you connect your identity to the outcome and the, and the, to your job, which some it's not, which is real easy to fucking do when that's gone, you're left to your own devices. And then who am I, you know? So that it's, it, it shows itself more in our business, Mm -hmm. but it's still, it's still present in every other, uh, every, every other, uh, uh, work environment, I guess. Right. And then over the course, you say you've been at this for 30 years. Yeah. So you started, you started in New York, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting with these headliners and all the, but what was the scene like back then versus now? Like how's comedy has stand up really changed? Over well, for the- me, it was, we started on Long Island. So my, there was a sense of community and there was a general, I was part of a generation that came up because there was uh, the older dudes. You know, um, and then there was me, Kevin James, Gary Valentine, Rock Rubin. Those were the four people uh, mm-hmm. that, at the East Side Comedy Club. And then I was in an improv group with Rob Bartlett, who wrote for Imus for years. So what happened was we would all get together on Wednesdays and just bring our notebooks. And we, there was a community. We'd support ourselves. We'd see each other at the club every night. Kevin and I ended up getting an apartment together because we didn't have enough time to do college shows on our own. But we did have enough time where we both did stand up and we'd fill in the rest with improv. So nice. we could work. So we had our own, we had a two man gig we put together and we worked. Mm-hmm. So when, and when I got my first TV deal, I moved out to LA. There was no sense of community at the, at the improv. You know, we used to play wiffle ball at the East side comedy club in the back, you know, in the afternoon, we put a strikes on the side of the building, play wiffle ball in the parking lot and go in, write jokes, go home, take a shower and go on stage that night and then come back and do it again. Um, so there was no sense of community when I came out to, um, uh, to, to start doing TV in California. So it, it didn't really change for me then as much as it made me more self-sufficient that, mm-hmm. okay, I can, you know, I'm living out here now. And I was a kid, I was living out here. Now I got this TV deal. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I know I can still work. So I went on the road. I went on the road to work cause I'd eat, you know, and still try to get this TV thing going. So as far as w- how comedy has changed, i I, I think now, I, it, for me, it's you got to be real, and it, it, it's you got to be real, not careful, but everyone has a friggin' opinion, and and colleges are the most touchy places to work. That are the arbiter of what you can and can't say from a racial group you're not a part of, mm-hmm. and you're twenty, okay? Right. I'm like, okay, right. listen, I'm a grown ass man. I'm talking about the past, and you don't have one yet. You know, so, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't understand that there's so many, there's so much righteous indignation about it, which muddies the water when people are, you know, muddies the water for, for serious shit of inequality, you know, and that, that's yeah. what, that's, that's what, but it, it's like that with any movement, there's going to be barnacles on the hull of anything moving forward. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. We've talked a fair amount about that on this podcast about just sort of like cancel culture. And and all this sort of like hypersensitivity and what that does to comedy. It's a twitchiness. And I don't I don't I don't know why. I'm just trying to think of how come how did we get to this twitchiness in our in, 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 in at this point in time in society? And it's because I think it's because people don't want information. They want affirmation. They just they believe and you can dial up whatever fucking reality you want. So anything that that's really is no, it's not true is an attack on your personal identity and reality. So you're in defense mode because you think you're being attacked when you're like, no, I'm telling you the truth. This is this is what happened. There's no alternative facts. There's just facts. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> the alternative is the spin you put on that fact. 
Right. You know? right. I, and I go back to the work ethic with my dad. Are you on time? No. My father always used to do this. My wife hates it when I do this. Here. Is it here? No. Whatever's supposed to be here, is it here? No. Everything else is an excuse or a story. And I don't want to hear either one. Mm-hmm. So it's all black and white for me, which is not a good way to be. Um, but when things have to get done and on a certain time and everything, it's it, it, it it's it's a nice, nice awareness to have. Uh, but, yeah. but, you know, not when you're dealing with people, but when you're dealing with things that have to be done. Look, Saturday Night Live doesn't go on because it's funny. It goes on because it's 1130. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And I feel like a lot of that, I mean, have you, from having that work ethic, have you felt that you've learned more? Because even if you're not feeling it, has that made you more, or I guess more, have a better, have better armor when you bomb? Cause it's like, look, I just got to be here. I got to do this. And. Oh no, I'm still a fucking mess. (laughs) (laughs) I can say these words, but I take, I can take it very seriously because there is so much work and so much of me put into, I'm better now. I'm better now at realizing, okay, that's what that moment was. That doesn't mean it's this. It's right. I'm better now at that as I, as I, as I've been doing this more and getting older and realizing what it took for me to get here. I know when I phoned it in and when I haven't. And right. the nice thing is, is I rarely, if ever do it because it means right. something to me, the outcome, the, the shift that I've, I've became aware of is, I'm entitled to doing my work. You know, if you, if everyone, I know the work has been done. Right. You now it comes out of my fucking control. Right. But I know I did everything I can do uh, to get to this moment. You know? Right. right. And it, it haunts you too. I'm like, ah, fuck, I got to look better on stage. I don't want to wear the jacket, but it's Saturday night. You put on a jacket. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I just hope that like, when you have as much comedy experience as you do, how the bombing spo- hopefully hurts a little less. I don't know. At least that's what my yeah. I tell my husband. Mm-hmm. My, my husband after after I bomb after I come home from comedy, he'll be like, oh, "How'd you do? do?" Yeah. And then he'll look at my face and be like, "Oh no, I'm not going to be able to go to sleep for a while." Yeah. yeah. Look, you know? it still hurt. I'll give you this. It still hurts, and acknowledge the hurt because the minute it doesn't hurt, you don't care anymore. Yeah. I would encourage you to process it quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Get it out of the machine. This hurts. You brought up Richard Pryor earlier, and today is his birthday. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I consider him one of the top five ever. And uh, Felicia Michaels was posting a story earlier today on social media about how Mm -hmm. she watched him, I think, four consecutive nights when she was just a young 20 something, you know, and watched him eat a dick in one room at the Mm -hmm. comedy. Or then move to the next one the next night and maybe walk half the room but each night coming back with the same shit it would just be a little tighter tune and then fucking the last night it just gets this meteoric applause and just crushes everything and yeah. it taught her you know as a youth to kind of stick to the plan but you just keep you know pounding it out and that's right. a kind of like intellectual honesty mm-hmm. and a comedic discipline um yeah, yeah. If, if you, if it, it's not going to come to you, I mean, the, the thing that, and the, the blessing and the curse that I had is I can improv and I can go on stage and I can, I can riff and I can hold an audience's attention, you know, for a fairly good amount of time. And if I wanted to, I could, I've done it. I've done whole sets that way. You know, maybe I've done it out of 45 minutes. Maybe I've done five, 10 minutes of material and the rest was just riffing and callbacks and shit. It's fun. 
It's something that I'm really good at. But in order to advance, you can't do that every night. In order to advance, you have to, all right, I have this tool. I'm just not going to do this. I need to get this done. And then I need to work on that. So I can take all the elements and put them all in there to do the work. Like you said, you have to do the work. And the work is to live in that live in uncertainty of not knowing if this is going to work and sticking to it because uncertainty is where all the possibilities are right so, you know sometimes when you're really bombing the, the little comedy machine and you will give you the line you need to get you to the next piece yeah yeah but if you if you if you identify and you and and i i know what your husband's going through you know when because <laughs> i know what i go through but i at this point when i especially if i'm home when i come home i don't bring it into the house because you know, I'll, I'll talk to my wife. Like I felt this, this, and this, and I'll give it, I'll give it an, a, a place to exist. It'll be in the car. If I, if uh, you, you can live with me until I get to the house, but you're not fucking coming in. That's smart. That's smart. I need to get there. Cause my, I mean, my husband also loves comedy. I'm lucky about that. So he'll like go over the set with me for yeah. as long as I need, but there has to be a point. I mean, like you're talking about PD, like with Richard Pryor, like there has to be a point where you just have to be like, that doesn't mean that I'm a terrible comic. Ask you yourself, learn from when, you, when you're doing the postmortem on your bit and you want to go over it. Yeah. Ask yourself the questions you're trying to answer. What do I need to fix? And how much of this is just to make me feel better? Right. And what you need to fix is the jokes you're going to fix. And once you, once you do that and you know what to try again to the next night, that emotion takes over for the old oh, poor me bullshit. Right. Totally. Now you're excited about doing something. You've taken action. You want to get back and fix it. And yep. when you start separating the oh poor me bullshit and this sucks and I'm I'm no good from what do I need to do? Yeah. That always seems to win. What do I need yeah. to do? Is the positive energy you want to hang on to? Totally. The other bullshit's always going to be there. It's just a question of how much attention you give it. Totally. And. Speaking of problems in stand-up, I have a feeling, have you ever hit a point in your career, I have a feeling with you this is probably true, mm. where not only are you doing stand-up, but you're also shooting one or two things. Mm. You know, you're up at 5 a.m. for a call time, and then you have a set at 12.30 at wherever. So talk about how you've handled those phases of your career. Oh, I have a feeling you've had a few. You don't sleep. Yeah. yeah. No, you're great. You handle it by not getting, I handle it by not getting overwhelmed. I, I can, I was, this actually, this was one of the nights I went, all right, you asked for this shit. I was shooting, I was on a show called Top Gear, which is a car show. So I was shooting that. Uh, we were on top of Monmouth Mountain. I had to drive a Cadillac up a ski slope. And we had to make the last, the last shot was uh, at sunset. I'm on Monmouth Mountain at sunset. We finished the last scene, me and the two other guys I'm on the show with. Um, Okay, they, they put me in the snowcat to bring me down. Helicopter picked me up, took me to LAX, put me on a red eye, flew to JFK. There was a car at JFK uh, that drove me to Silver Cup Studios where we shot Nurse Jackie. I took a shower in my dressing room and then shot a 7.30 scene with Edie Falco for Nurse Jackie. So I didn't sleep. I slept like this on the plane. Right. So I slept like this on the plane. Um, and I was doing two shows at the same time I was doing Nurse Jackie and Top Gear at the same time for about eight episodes. So that's eight, 10 weeks. So that was, and, and uh, sprinkled stand up in between uh, when we could. But, uh, but yeah, and that's how you do it. You do it because you work so hard to get there that when it all yeah. comes your way, if you frame everything, what I found is, all right, how am I going to frame this in my head? 
because there's always panic. I can't do this. I'm never going to get it done. I'm not prepared. I'm like, all right, all right. There's that energy. Mm-hmm. I've asked for this. Here it is. If it all goes to shit, I always look at it this way. If it all goes to shit, what's at least I need to say to myself? Mm-hmm. So I need to say, fuck, I gave it everything I got. It all went to shit. That's just the way that one worked out. Right. You know, I always, it's always, uh, it's Johnny Depp in the end of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 2. He's on the Black Pearl and the Kraken's coming up. He just takes out his sword and he's like, hello, beastie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to die, die with a fucking sword in your hand. Right. Don't die whimper and think I'm never going to do it. Right. So, so that once you, once I found for me anyway, if you take that, this isn't going to happen energy away or, or what if it doesn't work out and go, okay, it doesn't work out. What do you need to say to yourself at the, at the end of that? You're not going to die, but you're going to have to live with yourself. How can you live with yourself and just do what you need to do that. And then, then you're kind of, it's not that you, you want it to fail, but you're kind of okay if it does, because you've prepared yourself in a positive way. That's why, you know, every, you won't have to play. What if? No. Yeah. It, well, you still do, but you realize that it falls away quickly. Like, oh, if I only, you know, that bullshit starts. But then you're like, nah, I, I keep journals. I go back, I go, listen, I did everything I could do at the moment. I did the best I could with the information I had. That's another thing that helped me. Do the best you can with the information you have. Mm-hmm. And then realize that everything changes. Everything will, will evolve or devolve depending on your participation in it. How do you want to be in the face of it? That's yeah. what I keep asking myself. Yeah. It's true. How do you want to be when you're in the eye of the storm? Yeah. How do you want to be in the face of it? You know, and a lot of the shit we just create in our own fucking heads. That's true. That's true. And you were talking about Top Gear. Are you, were you a big car guy before that? Now I'm sure you have more knowledge than most. I was a car guy. I still can't fix them. Can't fix them. Can't. (laughs) Carburetor's gone. I'm fucked. I was fucked before. Now I'm fucked with. So I can't fix them. But yeah, I loved cars before because my dad was very mechanical and he could fix anything. And I was always, he would explain everything to me. And we would, when we drive, I'd pick out cars and stuff. So my love of the car uh, and the era that I love is different from my dad's because my dad was a fifties kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just like the muscle cars because those are what I saw. You know, it was because on Long Island, you went back 10, 15 years because you could afford those cars then. So all the kids... And the really cool cars were just primer because no one had any fucking money to paint them. So you have a primer car with enough money for a set of rims on the back and then hubcaps on the front. And they'd always get like Krager wheels and they'd jack them up and you would see these cars. And those are the cars that uh, I would uh, I would see all over. The older kids were driving around. And we used to go on vacation um, to uh, Lake George, New York, which was, we'd go camping. You ever see Italians camp? My mother's hanging cheese and salami <laughs> in the fucking trees. <laughs> We're pulling our boat with a Cadillac. <laughs> We're going up the throughway to camp on this island. My uncles are visiting us on the campsite. They're wearing three-piece suits. And they're fishing off the dock. They're like, hey, hey I hope I don't catch a witness. <laughs> so when we went on vacation, we were allowed to buy stuff we weren't allowed to have. Sugar cereal, because my mother never had sugar cereal in the house. So I could eat Lucky Charms. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was a party. And we were allowed to get, I could get Hot Rod Magazine. I get car magazines. So I'd get the car magazines and comic books. So I'd get Spider-Man and the car magazines. Um, uh, and there was a guy, Joe Oldham, used to write for Hot Rod Magazine. His son actually runs Edmunds Inside Line, which is a website for automotive uh, website. So when I moved out here and I got the gig, 
I connected with him and I went, is your father Joe old? He goes, you know my dad. I go, Hot Rod Magazine. So, so I, had, I had my love of cars then, but I don't have the mechanical ability. So in answer to your question, I was. But since I, be, since I got on Top Gear, I got the keys to the kingdom. And I, right. got, I got to be able to travel to all those uh, places and been exposed to cars I never would have been before. I mean, I, I drove a Ferrari F12 Berlinette 188 miles an hour on a causeway. That car cost more than the house I grew up in. Oh my wow. God. You know, they flew me to Germany. They put me on the Autobahn. They gave me the new Lamborghini. Uh, what did they give me? The Lamborghini. It wasn't the Gallardo. It was, oh, it was the Hurricane, the new Lamborghini Hurricane. They put me on the Autobahn. They said, go. It's like a spaceship, that thing. I did 173 in the left lane in a freaking Autobahn on an open road. That's fucking stupid. Don't yeah. That's <laughs> dumb. <laughs> dumb. But yeah, I got to do all that stuff. I jumped a caddy about 40 feet in the air. I got to, uh, I, I went to rally school. I got to do all this stuff. Um, so yeah, and it was a great experience. The, the, only, the only thing I regret, not regret, but the only thing that happened, the circumstances was my dad passed away before he could see me doing the show. Mm. So yeah, that was the only thing where I really kind of, kind of, kind of took a punch with that one. Cause he right. would have loved it. Right. Yeah. Guys get very passionate about that show. I've, noticed i mean yeah it's it's and it was and i was so pleased when i saw the kids faces because for those of you guys on the show it was a, it was a uk show in in um it was a, gone for 20 25 years in the uk yeah. and we were the american version of the show that was in the uk kind of like the united states we're the american version right of the <laughs> right that's pretty much how we got here. Take your fucking tea and throw it in a harbor. You know? <laughs> no taxation without representation. They're wearing red. They're marching in a straight line. Pick them off. So uh, we were the we were the American version of the show, but it was a it was a uh, a well, it was a cult-like show. You know, I yeah. mean for cult, it was a worldwide phenomenon. It wasn't as big oh, yeah. in the States as it was around the globe. And when we did it, we were sanctioned by them. So it wasn't like we were just doing an imitation by them. They were we were a, a, a version of them that they, those guys actually did. Right. So we did the first thing in the studio. We didn't, and I saw the kids' faces, and the kid couldn't look up at me. He was a little kid. He couldn't look up at me. He's, you know, for whatever reason, he was sitting there like this. He goes, "I, I am proud to have you as my presenters." He took oh, ownership no. of the show. He was 12, 13. He was a kid. He was so shaking. He couldn't. I said, is it okay if I bend down and take a picture with you? And I bent down, I took a picture with him. I said, hey, come on, let's both look at the camera. And I was on my knees looking at it, and the, guys, the, the, the kid's mother took a picture, and he left happy. And that's what that meant to that kid. Yeah. You know, and that's what we were allowed to experience, um, a, a pre-existing connection with an audience. And it wasn't lost on any of us. Me, Rutt, and Tanner, the other two guys on the show, was that this was not lost on us because we didn't really achieve this. It was only the second or third show. It was the promise of what we could be to them. So in doing the work of what we did, we really bonded as a unit um, uh, in, in, with the same intention of, of providing the joy for those kids when we saw that day too. So again, that's doing the work. That's doing the work for the reason you're doing it. And again, having a reason you're doing it too, whether it's for your own, well, seeing how good I can be or for whatever reason, you know, I got a wife. She eats every day. I got to keep doing this. <laughs> every day this woman eats. Yeah, wives do that. Yeah. What are you fighting for? Yeah. You know? A man's wife can withstand anyhow. Yeah. 
That's yeah. it, baby. My one of my favorite thing is when I see a tree grow through the sidewalk because I grew up. I love that. Man puts down concrete and nature goes, yeah, fuck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you and your concrete. That's New York nature for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you've been on a few cult-like shows. I mean, Nurse Jackie, yeah. that, people were religious about yeah. that when oh, that was, was on. Great. Yeah, she was great. Edie was yeah. just so great and so and so sweet. And she uh, she did the nicest thing for my mother. All right. So I get the gig. Right. And right away, my mother becomes the queen of a community. Yeah. She's in one of those 55 and over communities. And now she can go. Uh, you know, my son is working with Edie Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> so right away. Oh, you're kidding. No, the Edie Soprano. Yeah. OK, fine. I thought he was a fireman. No, that was the other show. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Needles. Yeah. So I'm working. Uh, uh, I get the gig, right? And my mother starts reading about Edie. And Edie mentioned me uh, on The Tonight Show. And I was doing The Tonight Show a couple of weeks later. So Edie Soprano said your name. Okay. So my mother starts reading about it. And she, when she watches The Tonight Show, she finds out that Edie's got two kids. So my dad had passed away. And my mother processes guilt by knitting. Okay. Right. She's knitting. So I have more Afghans than Kabul because she misses him so much. She's still wearing the black dress. My, my father died 10 years ago. She's still wearing the black dress. So she's knitting. So she's like, she made winter hats for Edie's kids. She knitted them winter hats. And, uh, and she's like, listen, Edie Soprano, she's a single mother. She's working. When does she have time to knit? I, I, I don't know, Ma. <laughs> but she made the hats and they're awful they're just she's not <laughs> middle, they're awful the, the the brim is over on this side they look like tiny elephant man hats they were just like, like <laughs> for, for little john merrick it's like over here <laughs> so she finishes the hats and she goes i want you to give these to edie soprano i'm like oh thank you ma i open them up i go these are freaking i, I was almost went to buy hats and take the label off and say my mother made these but i couldn't do it so i went to work and i said edie look uh and and it, wednesdays the kids came in it was like it was very much a family the kids would come in you know uh, macy and, Aunt, and anderson running around and everything and okay mommy's got to go fight now <laughs> and put them in a dressing room and um so i had the hats I gave him to Edie. I said, look, Edie, my mother made these for the kids and they're terrible. Don't, don't, put them <laughs> don't, don't let the kids wear them. They're going to get beat up on the bus. Give them to St. Jude's. Yeah. No, absolutely. Donate them, put them on a teapot, something. But I just, I have to deliver them to you. And she went, oh my God, Edie. She went, she, she sent my mother a card with a note in it. Well, then the phone rings. It's my mother. Let me tell you what a lady Edie Soprano is. <laughs> I go to the mailbox. I open up the mailbox. There's a letter. It's handwritten. I open it up. There's a card with a handwritten note, a handwritten note. She didn't she didn't push send. She got up. She wrote a letter. She licked a stamp. She walked to the mailbox to communicate to another human being. That's a friggin' lady. OK, ma. What did it say? It said, thank you so much for the card. What did you do with the note? I had it laminated. What? Yes. 
Where is it? It's in the curio next to the good dishes and the pictures of Sinatra. <laughs> I said, why do you do that? She's like, well, I made a copy and I put the copy in my bag to show the girls. I didn't want anything to happen to the original. Okay, mom. What'd they do with the copy? It's in the day room at the clubhouse. Okay. Well, and I told Edie that story on the podcast. She had no idea. I, I don't think I ever told her that that's what happened, but I got to tell her that story when, when she did my show. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. That? She made my mother happy. How great is that? She took the time. She took the time. She licked a stamp. Yeah. Okay. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing makes moms happier than handwritten notes. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Doesn't matter if it says the same shit as a text message. You handwrite it. Oh my god! Yeah, and, and it's also what they understand. Uncertainty breeds, you know, whatever story you're going to tell yourself about. Oh my god, it's not. You know, what do I do? So that's my mother. She doesn't understand. I'm on a show now on CBS All Access, which is the streaming service. Uh -huh. it, CBS All Access means an hour and a half of my mother going, "What channel?" What? <laughs> oh, for God's sake, what channel is it? on? CBS is two. Is it on two, ma? It's on the stream. It's easier for me to get Lucy Lou and Jennifer Goodwin, fly them out to the house and just act it out in my mother's living room for her. <laughs> right. right. It's crazy with because their generation, they don't, they haven't grown up with it. Like we have, yeah. like my, my in-laws, you know, over this pandemic, I feel like I've become their IT person. Yeah. Because my husband just ignores them now. And I'm, you know, <laughs> you're, you're always, you're always trying to win them over. And so my husband will just send them to me and i'm like mm -hmm. teaching my father-in-law how to use microsoft word really yeah <laughs> he's written by the way he's a he's he's a doctor he's written several books and he doesn't really know how microsoft word works he's he a doctor. He he typewriter no he he writes i don't know what he i was like what hey. have you been writing on he's like i don't know because i guess he he's retired now so someone in his office would help yeah whatever he was doing well, I'll be honest with you. I I'm not that far off from your dad. I mean, I can get I can get away with I can do I can function in this new environment. But right. you know what tech support is in my house? It's this. Honey. <laughs> Honey, I don't. I'm going to put an axe in the printer if you don't come down here. Just turn it off and on. That's I did that. <laughs> Unplug <Please>. it. <laughs> We, we bought a new refrigerator with an ice maker. I ain't seen ice in six months. I don't think it fucking works, but I had to pay for it. Oh, yeah. You probably, I mean, I'm, you probably need to just change the filter on it. I didn't even, I don't even think, I don't even think they hooked up the water that goes to the ice maker, to be honest. Oh. <laughs> I, if I think I, that because we've had so many problems with our fridge, and that's always what it is. If I lay down on that fridge and I look and I see that little piece of the uh, copper, I'm pretty sure it's not connected. I don't want to tell my wife because I don't want to drag it out and have to do it. Right. <laughs> You're not fixing it. Nah. So what 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 are you working on now that you're really excited about? You've got your show. Yeah, I got my podcast. I was I was very happy about that. Uh, I I released an album um, in uh, in September. It actually debuted number one on iTunes, which was great. I didn't think I was like, wow, look at that. Uh, and it was, I recorded it at Gotham uh, Comedy in New York, and uh, we didn't rush the release, but we had it, and, and the pandemic hit. So I was like, all right, I need to put content out there. That's, we have to stay present and put content out. So I did the, um, I put the album out. 
because my last album I did last year was called Unconditional, and that got uh, Intro Bang uh, Comedy Album of the Year, and um, someone on James Corden heard it, so I did the Corden show, and it was it had a nice momentum to it, and I was going to put out another one, and the record company wanted to follow it up, uh, and this one's called It's Scary in Here, and it came out in September, so I was doing that, uh, working on the um, the podcast are a lot of work, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mine, my actually, I'll, I'll tell you why mine's work, uh, is a lot of work because it's not just one thing. There's two different things connected to it. I wanted to communicate a feeling with my podcast because there's so many out there, which are interview shows that people do really well. Frankly, that, that I'm like, okay, that's already exists in the space. How's mine going to be different? Right. So the feeling I wanted to communicate was when I was a kid, the best night's sleeps I ever had in my life is when I was upstairs and I heard my mom and dad and their downstairs laughing. For some reason, that always made me feel good. So that's the vibe I go for on my show. So my show opens up with like five, ten minutes of me, my wife, my two friends discussing a topic. Then we cut away to a one-on-one interview I've done with a celebrity. Um, and then like any good f- group of friends, we talk about them when they leave. So after the interview, <laughs> we do another 10 or 15 minutes. Of, Did you hear when he said that? That reminds me of this. So it's like you're coming over my house, company's coming over. And then when they leave, we're talking about them. Um, that's a so, great idea. Yeah, so now we got the interview, and we got the uh, my house is pretty much the before and the after the interview. Right. So it's it's a, it's a lot of work just because it's not just one thing. One episode requires uh, two different pieces or three right. different pieces to put together. So it takes a, a great deal of work, and you always want, as you know, in podcast land, you always want to be ahead because yeah. you never know what's going to happen. Like I got uh, road dates coming up. I'm doing the hilarities in Cleveland, December. Hold on. Let's go to the big board. If anyone's listening out there in podcast land, December 10th through the 12th. Uh, and then I'm coming to you guys in Arlington, Virginia at the draft house, 18 and 19. And then God willing, I'll be at the helium in St. Louis for new year's. So with all that stuff going on and I got this other thing and you guys graciously pushed the time for me today because I had to record this other thing for this other project I'm doing. So it's, you know, it's pandemic time. Throw shit on the wall, baby. All right. Let's Jack's keep dancing. Falling. Do it. It seems like you haven't really let it bring you down much. You're still doing a lot of stand-up. What's the longest period of time you've gone without doing stand-up? This was pretty much it. I, I, was, on, I was on stage March 14th. I was at the Chicago Improv when all this hit. I flew home, and then I didn't work till April may maybe i did a i did a drive-in in may so i had like a month or a month and change off before i did that drive-in and um yeah i was going crazy i realized i had to go i had to go for my my marriage walk every afternoon because i was driving my wife insane because we're not <laughs> yeah we're not home you know, you know yeah. i come in on thursdays my ass goes to the airport whether i want to or not because that's yeah. you know I'm either shooting or I got to go somewhere. So just being home and not having that feedback and everything. My wife will even tell me when I'm home for a while. She's like, hey, go to the improv, do a set. You're driving me crazy. I'm like, you're right. You know, so it's that that rudder. It's kind of like a rudder, you know, okay, I can do this because the ideas sit in your head and then they need an outlet. So yeah, I go for my safe, my marriage walk every afternoon. I like I like how you call it that. It's- oh yeah, because I'm I'm home and I'm noticing stuff. And see, right. my wife runs the house, and God bless her. I don't want to run it. It'll go to shit if I do. Here's the money. I'll go out, kill the food. What time's dinner? That's you know that's it. Right. And my wife's in charge of everything, and and she does a great job. So she has a system. And when I'm home and noticing shit, I've learned not to say anything. I've learned okay. the hard way. Yeah. Right. I went, honey. You know why don't you just move the 
And I'm like, I'm sorry, baby, you're busy. I'll, I'll tell me to go fuck myself so you don't have to. You're obviously on a schedule and you have all this working. I'll, I'll be fine. Because you notice all kinds of shit I never saw before. There's a fat, naked man that lives in my mirror. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This son of a bitch looks just like me and he's getting bigger. Right. So, yeah, well, you got to start. You start noticing how the other person works because I like hear my husband working all the time and I'm like, how do these people deal with you? Yeah. You know, like, oh my God. Yeah. My wife is like, I, my job is I, I get up and I'm usually up first in the house, right? So I'll get up in the morning and um, uh, I'll make my coffee uh, and, and then I'll start my day and then whatever I got to do, the workout, go meditate, whatever I want to do. But before I do that, I fill a coffee cup, a uh, travel mug of coffee for my wife, so it stays warm. I put it by the side of the bed. My job is done. She wakes up. She's got the coffee there. I, I, for some weird sense, I provided and I feel better about myself. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So that's what I do. And then I do my, and I notice how my wife is getting stuff done and it takes her a long time to get up, but then she works. I know the period she works and I know when her tail's down, she's focused and don't, don't bother her. Yeah. But she's focused. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I got this window to see my wife here. I got this window to see my wife there. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I know these 10 minutes are fine. Yeah. And I'm and, and, and see my thing is I'm riddled with ADD. Did you guys notice? It's raging right now. <laughs> so I'll work for five minutes. I'll get I gotta get up, walk around, and I go over, I smell my wife's hair. It's it, it's it's like I need that. I need to go over and just smell your hair, tell you I love you, and just uh, and I'll torture her because I just need the attention. I need to be close to you. I'm I don't I don't know why. I just do. It's like my dog. My dog has to put her butt on me before she goes to sleep. So she's in the pack and any movement, she'll wake up. Right. So yeah. I, I put my butt on my wife and I tell her that just means I love you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she, she tolerates more of my crazy. Like I know her crazy. Right. And she knows my crazy. And uh, what makes my marriage work so well is we just not crazy at the same time. Yeah. So, and, and the fights get shorter, which is, which is great. It's just That's like we, nice. Yeah, the fights are shorter now. More efficient. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know what? It'll be five minutes. It'll be fine. Right. <laughs> it's not, I'm not slamming doors. I'm not going for, a, I need to go for a walk. No, I don't. Right. It'll be fine in five minutes. Right. Yeah. That, I think a happy marriage is, look, everyone knows at some point the person you love is going to be a dick. You're going to be a dick. You're going to be a dick. And you're going to, everyone's going to be a dick. So just be a dick as short as you can. That's right, all. as short as you can. And if the other person's being a dick, like you said, expect the dick time. That's how yeah. I wanted it to. But yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, this is <laughs> it. You can also expect the other dick time if you want your marriage to work, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, you, yes, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, just just if, if the person's in that moment, just be like, okay, this is my husband also very ADD. Sometimes he has like the ADD attack where I need to get out of here. I need to, you know, just here's the dog. Take it for a walk. Yeah, I can't. Like, my, like my wife, I hope she knows by now. Don't talk to me on the phone. I can't do two things at once. Right. I can't do it. I'll be on the phone. Tell him I got to leave. <laughs> I can't do it. Right. You guys are giving me a lot to look forward to. It's the best. It's the best. No. Wait. No, no. Wait. No, it's the best. It's the best. Oh, yeah. Best move I ever made. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it's just, and she's on the podcast with me. So she she has we're doing this together. And when I look at I'm like, oh, wow, she's really good. She can do this. She can. And it, it's helping me with 
not giving up control, but realize, because here's the other thing I, I noticed between the two mediums we all work in, like this stand-up, I'm everything. I'm the writer, producer, performer, yeah. director. I do it all. I mean, I'll take notes, but pretty much it's all me. Uh, the podcast, you know, I can't, it's, it's a conversation. It's a, it's, I want, what I wanted to do is give a, a version of my family for you, you know, cause well, that's, that's what I liked. I liked when my house was the center of everything when I was a kid. So my, there was all, all the relatives came to my house. All uh, I was in stand up, and my brothers were in the restaurant business. So midnight, there was a pot of sauce on and, you know, we we're just getting home from work. So the house was always people in the house. So I wanted to be able to project that. So in order to do that, I can't have a vision of what an episode's going to be. I can direct them what we want to talk about, right. but it's going to be that community and that sense of openness, leaving a space for the audience to uh, to to sit too in the conversation. So, and it's it's taught me a great deal of uh, I'll use the word trust because I don't have a better word, but trusting that it's going to work out, even though I can't control every aspect of it. And the pandemic's done that too. You know, because yeah. I, I, I got I'm a control freak. And then when things don't work, I used to punish myself and I'll say, look what you did. There's no way I can blame myself for this. Don't think I didn't try, though. Yeah, I because I, 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 you know, I spoke to I spoke to the universe. And said, I just want to spend more time with my wife. I want to be I want to get off the road. I meant series regular. I didn't mean global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, but we still have to do what we do in these in these conditions. It's true. Know? I had a great gig in Pennsylvania. Guy, uh, I flew to Pennsylvania, and they they there's this giant tent, uh, and I did an outdoor gig. They brought in these heaters, these big tent heaters, and it was BYOB. People brought their own booze, their own lawn chairs. They were all bundled up. They blasted the heaters in the tent. They built a little stage for me. I said, "This is fucking great." It was like 300 people there. This is great, and I did an hour and a half. And we just getting by just doing it. And it was outside and it was car alarms going off. So I had to improv for five minutes while the car alarms were going off just to, to make that funny. But it was people coming together to overcome the situation. I'm like, this is, this, I'm happy to be a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to know comedy still can work in all this. We've all done all kind, kinds of shows. I've done shows in alleys now, mm -hmm. you know, and all the, and people have opened their garages yeah. into the alley and watched us and you know what they laughed and it worked it was great yeah nope yeah. i hear a noise is someone's phone screwing up no 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 nope. so. no all right maybe it's me okay sorry about that i just heard a clicking i didn't know it was going to ruin the audio oh no all right audio is top now yeah yeah, um, over here. So, uh, yeah, I, felt like, I felt like PD, am I, are you frozen or am I interrupting you? No, you're just oh. being well, No. <laughs> um, yeah, this is kind of like a marriage, you know, 100 episodes. This yeah. Amazing. And yeah. What a way yeah. yeah, you got, now how did you guys start this? PD asked me to, PD was doing something for the draft house before. Mm. I came on and then PD was the one who I was a I was a newer, I've been acting forever, but I was a newer mm -hmm. standup mm -hmm. and PD asked me to do it. And we did one version of this for a while with, then there were some other people, right? At first PD, it was like, yeah, we would one like more guests, local people and just yeah. kind of 
triads and dyads because she and I, we were cool off stage, but we didn't really have our like on cast dynamic, I guess, if you yeah. want to call it that quite yet. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I didn't want to do it alone. I started off trying to do this on my own or whatever and just guess it, it's a pain in the ass to book. And if you at least have one reliable person that's going to show up 15 minutes early, like Lombardi time, mm-hmm. you know, even if you don't have the extra guests or whomever, you can just bounce topics off each other. And then we grew our dynamic. And then we just said, hey, you know what? We're just going to have the headliners and pitch this thing. And hey, it's been great. Yeah. Well, at first, we didn't know if headliners were going to do it or not. And we were kind of nervous, but that everybody, pretty much everybody says yes. And everybody's down to talk to us. And it's been, it's been a really cool experience. Yeah. It's, 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 it's it's part of the new delivery system. Um, And the the one thing I found when I started doing mine and mine's pretty new, you guys are ahead of me, but the, uh, the, the assistance of the community was something I was like, wow, look at that. You know? Uh, I had Adam Carolla put me on to help me plug and then he did my show. Um, Ryan uh, Sickler, who has the Honeydew podcast, uh, oh, which I just did again for the second time and got a lovely prize. I, uh, I was noticing that mug looks like it really keeps things warm. Look at that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was it was really nice to be a part of it. Jimmy Pardo's a friend, the Never Not Funny podcast, which is great. Um, the guys over at the Dollop, uh, Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Those guys are really good. Uh, you know, it was just it's nice to not be accepted, but, but to have people realizing that we're all in this together. Yeah. That's what I look for. And, and it's like when you guys go, shit, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's, you know, let's cross the holiday as much as we can. Yeah. I'm just hoping that that sentiment actually, and that intention uh, expands to people because when it does work, it's, uh, it's, it's, again, it's a pandemic. How do you want to be in the face of it? Yeah. How do you want to be in the face of this bullshit? What do you want to say? You know what? Yeah, it didn't work out, but I did this. I went down with a sword in my hand. Yeah. Fighting for what I believed in with the information I had at the time. So, and you know, yeah. shit, too. That's the other thing I realized. Like, like I'll write something, and like, even if I'm just journaling or just scribbling around, I'm going, all right, are you full of shit or what? And then sometimes I'll answer myself going, yeah, you're full of shit. And- <laughs> it's important. Know thyself. Know you're full of shitness. Yeah, no, you're full of shitness. Yeah. yeah. Call yourself on your own bullshit because other people can smell it way before you can. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So true. What's interesting is like we've had no real problems getting like headliners. We've uh-huh. had much more, I think, getting local people. Wouldn't you say, Elaine? 100%. 100%. Which says, which I think says a lot. But, you know, a lot of the time, sort of the bigger the career, the cooler the cooler the people in mm. many ways. Well, it's also helping us, you know, it's helping people right. put messes in the seats. You know, why wouldn't you want to? I mean, I, I look forward to coming to see you guys. Um, it's one of my favorite gigs because I like the people. I like the part of the country I'm in. I have friends. Tony Kornheiser is a friend and he's got his his show. Uh, my friend, uh, my friend, Mark, Mark Stern, who's uh, Nigel on the Tony Kornheiser show, not only is going to come down to a guest spot on the show, but he's on my podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. he's on the nice. show with me. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's a great room. So uh, yeah, I being part of it and being able to uh, to have a conversation with other comics, it's, it's, it's fun. And, and you just, here's the other thing is, I, you don't realize that what we do, people not only listen to, but it, it, it could help somebody sometime. It could get somebody yeah. through a tough time. When you get those emails, they make me feel great. 
you know, because yeah. I provided yeah. the service. It was for me, it was those comedy albums under my bed. You yeah. know, those were my prized possession. That and the sports illustrated swimsuit issue when I was a kid. Those, <laughs> those were my prime possession. That's if if the bomb goes off, as long as I have these, I'll be all right. <laughs> well, on that note, we want to thank Adam Ferreira for being here with us today. We're very excited to have you at the Arlington Draft House in a couple weeks. I'm and tell people where they can find you, where they can follow you. At Adam Ferrar on all the social media. The uh, podcast is called the Adam Ferrar Podcast. 30 minutes, you'll never get back. And you can get that wherever you get your podcast. Uh, my new album is called It's Scary in Here. You can get that wherever you get your comedy albums. It's in uh, heavy rotation. I'm very grateful to Sirius, Pandora, and Spotify. Uh, and I hope I get to see you guys real soon. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, we'll be there. Hell yeah. All right, be good, guys. Uh, hopefully I'll see you soon and uh, stay safe. You too. Thank you much. Take care. Bye.